Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast 2022 edition. I'm Charlie Sykes. I am back. I feel like I've been gone forever, but not long enough to actually be up for 2022. I don't know. Is that a wimpy thing to say? Bill Crystal joins me for the first Bulwark Podcast of 2022. Happy New Year, Bill. Happy New Year to you, Charlie. You know, I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it. So I guess it's was it almost exactly three years ago that we did the first of these podcasts in I am, uh, the I conference am, room there at, at <sighs> Sarah Longwell's conference room at shortly after the weekly standard was closed. Was that maybe it was the second week of January of twenty nineteen? No, I think first I week? think I actually think you're right. We did an early one. Yeah. Uh, for people who uh, forgot about this, we're coming up on our third year anniversary. I think our full. Full launch was January 7th, interesting like date. So yeah. we're, we're coming up on that. And you and I did a podcast, sort of a, a like, hey, this is coming, people, uh, podcast. And I, it's funny that you mentioned it because I, I can remember it very distinctly now. So I, I wish I could say that I'm tanned, ready, and rested, but um, I'm actually making notes. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to write a piece on you know, the, the state of political exhaustion that I think a lot of people are feeling. And I think part of it, is this sort of endless cycle of futility. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you don't want to get ground down by it, but I certainly understand why people get exhausted that, you know, a year after Trump leaves office, here we are in this sort of strange world of, oh, you know, post, uh, post fact, post reality, post pretty much anything that we'd come to count on. Yeah. I mean, I guess there are a couple of things. I mean, we, we kind of, have always implicitly, I think, kind of expected this to be solved. You know what I mean? This will be yeah. a moment, a moment of clarity, a moment of defeat of Trump, a moment of of clarity for our fellow Americans, and we're kind of beyond it. But it turns yeah. out, like COVID, frankly, is, is one of these things that doesn't <laughs> go away so quickly, and it lingers in different forms, and so hopefully it gets less virulent, but uh, it, it doesn't, once unleashed this kind of authoritarianism, uh, yeah, it just can't be snapped back in the, you know, the toothpaste doesn't go right back into the into the tube, I guess. So I think that's yeah. that's a large part of it. And the other thing is, I think different people have written this that you know authoritarians on their way up as they seek to seize power and seize more power, uh, they they depend on a kind of exhaustion by their opponents. Right? I think it's true. Right? Yeah. No, no. I, I think it's a great point. And look, there's a lot of polls that are very discouraging over the weekend of the the partisan divide over January sixth. The number of Republicans, like around seventy percent, that don't think that Joe Biden was legitimately elected. The rather large number of Republicans who are open to the idea of political violence. The twelve percent of Republicans who actually want Trump to fight to restore himself. And those crazy polls. But but here's a just a before we get too far down that rabbit hole. I think this is a little bit encouraging, and, and it is worthwhile to have this perspective. The ABC poll, the ABC Ipsos poll that came out, that a big majority of Americans do think that January 6th, the attack did threaten democracy. Um, let me just read this to you. Nearly a year after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, a strong majority of Americans condemn it and believe former President Donald Trump is at least partially to blame. Partisan splits have hardened over time. We still know this. Some Republicans back Trump's version of events. But an overwhelming majority of Americans, 72%, believe the people involved in the attack were threatening democracy, while one in four Americans believe that the individuals involved were protecting democracy. Uh, broken down by party identification, Democrats, not surprisingly, nearly unanimous, 96%. In believing that those involved in the attacks were threatening democracy, Republicans are more split. 
45% say it was a threat to democracy, and 52% saying those involved in the riot were protecting democracy. Now, look, for, I think for you and I, we focus on that 52%. A majority of Republicans actually look at what happened on January 6th and think, this is good. This was a good thing. But I also think it's worthwhile acknowledging that we're close to three quarters of Americans that call bullshit on that narrative. No, I think that's important. And I, if you want to think of it this way, so 45% of Republicans are, let's just say, anti-January 6th, to put it simply. Yeah. Maybe a third of them could be persuaded not to vote for Republican candidates who aren't anti-January 6th, who excuse January 6th, or even support it, which an awful lot of them are going to do over the next year because Trump is now pro-January 6th, and some of them believe it, and the others will be scared of getting crosswise with Trump and his supporters. I think it's a political opportunity for Democrats. If you peel off 15 20% of Republicans you hold the house, you know? And so uh, people are looking at these, you can look at this, you know, as a kind of glass half full, glass half empty thing. And I, I think that all the political pros who are saying with some truth that this isn't at the top of Americans' list, that they're concerned about inflation, they're concerned about crime, that's all true. You have to have answers or, or things to say about that. But the idea that you can't peel off some Republicans who are pro-democracy from the current Republican Party, some Republican voters who are pro-democracy, uh, who from the current Republican Party, I don't buy that. I think people are too, including people, including Democratic Democrats and Democratic strategists, are too passive in looking at these numbers and saying, "Well, Republican voters are hopeless." No, all it takes is fifteen percent of them, and, and it changes the balance of power. Well, and also in another relatively positive number amid all of these truly horrible ones. I'm not. I'm not trying to put lipstick on a pig here, but but there are some other numbers, including this uh, Politico Morning Consult survey that finds that you know broad public support for what the January sixth committee is doing. Forty uh, percent of Republican voters approve of the committee. Uh, overall, three fifths of those surveyed back the January sixth committee. Two-thirds of Americans said it was important the federal government probe the events surrounding the attack on the Capitol. So th this is something, just something to keep in mind before we go into the some sort of, you know, doom loop of what's happened to Republicans. But here's yeah, an just on that, you know, and Republican House members, of course, are consistently voting against enforcing I know. subpoenas from that committee. So you have a sort of All actual of issue that you can make of that, right? I mean, do you think this committee should do its work or not? The Republicans running for the House or in the House and candidates for the House don't think so. So again, the politics of this are a little better for Democrats, I think, than the Democrats themselves appreciate. Well, I want to talk about the Democrats and, and how they're handling this in, in just a moment. Because you had some really interesting thoughts over the weekend, I think, about the way the House of Representatives ought to mark the, the anniversary. But I have two sound bites that I wanted to, to share that, that really do kind of illustrate where the Republican Party is at and how difficult it's going to be to actually change hearts and minds, at least among elected Republicans. So the two sound bites are from Liz Cheney and Peter Meyer. Both of them voted to impeach Donald Trump last year. Both of them voted this way, but they have taken dramatically different paths since. Uh, first, let's let's start with with what Liz Cheney had to say yesterday. We, as Republicans, have a choice to make. I am a conservative Republican. I believe strongly in uh, the policies of low taxes and limited government and a right. strong national defense. I think the country needs a strong Republican Party going forward. But our party has to choose. We can either uh, be loyal to Donald Trump 
or we can be loyal to the Constitution. But we cannot be both. And uh, right now, uh, there are far too many Republicans who are trying to uh, enable the former president, embrace the former president, look the other way and hope that the former president goes away, trying to obstruct the activities of this committee. Uh, but we won't be deterred. So, uh, again, Liz Cheney not bending, not bowing, not uh, flinching in any way whatsoever. Although I have to say that my my inner snark responded to her you know, comment that the Republican Party has to choose by thinking and then tweeting. <laughs> the Republican Party has already chosen, though, hasn't it? I mean, if the Republican Party is faced with a choice between Donald Trump and the Constitution, uh, it's pretty clear where they've come down. But if Liz Cheney carries this flag forward, and who knows what will happen in Wyoming, if in, in the work that the committee does, and who knows what will happen in Wyoming this year in her primary for re-election, and then perhaps we were to run in 23, 24 for president against Trump as a Republican, let's assume she gets, we were talking about these percentages earlier, but let's assume a quarter of the Republican Party is pro-Constitution, not pro-Trump. That matters if they're, if she gets 25% of the vote in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and subsequent primaries, uh, it, 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 make, it sends a message. It reminds people that the governing coalition should be the Democratic Party plus pro-Constitution, pro-democracy Republicans. I think it may moderate, therefore, the Democrats some, understanding that those voters are available. So I think she she's become just a, a very central figure, don't you think, in, yes. in our politics going forward? I mean, really, to a degree that I wouldn't even have, I mean, I, of course, was admired her right after January 6th and all that, and we all supported her, but um, I, I guess I wouldn't have quite predicted how central she's become and uh, how much she's sort of at the center of gravity of, of, of things going forward. And what's happening with other Republicans tends to highlight this, that that it's not inevitable that even though she supported in uh, impeachment and spoke out against this, that she would be so undeterred by this because there were 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump. And with the exception of, and I don't want to be, I may back off on some of this, but with the exception of, of her and Adam Kinzinger, a lot of them basically have gone to ground, have been beaten up, said they're going to retire. And of course, Kinzinger has said that as well, but that they've been beaten up by, by this. And you know, one of those who clearly has been crushed by the reaction is Michigan's Peter Meyer, who uh, initially you know, sounded like he was going to be this voice of you know, the pro-democracy Republicans. And yet, I know that you caught him on Meet the Press yesterday morning, and he's basically now explaining how Republicans have no other alternative other than to support Trump. I mean, I I know that I felt this was coming for some time. There was a, that really outstanding profile by Tim Alberta about the crushing of Peter Meyer's soul <laughs> by, you know, the uh, by MAGA world. But it was once again on display yesterday. And of course, he's articulating what I think a lot of Republicans are saying that, yeah, you know, give, given our opposition to Joe Biden, Trump's our only choice. Let me just play a little soundbite from uh, Peter Meyer from Meet the Press yesterday morning. There was no alternative. There was no other path. And given how President Biden, um, when he was elected into office, you know, said he would be moderate and look for bipartisan solutions. But then after, uh, and frankly, I, I blame the former president for this, after we lost the two Senate seats in Georgia and the Senate flipped, uh, it became uh, an exercise in trying to be an LBJ or FDR style presidency and enact transformational change in the absence of any compelling mandate from the American people to do so. So that gave the rallying signal uh, that created uh, a very steep divide. And at the end of the day, uh, there's no other option right now in the Republican Party. Well, Bill, 
I, I understand that he's speaking for the vast majority of Republicans, but that's simply not true. There are alternatives, and the fact that Liz Cheney is right there is an indication that you can be a conservative Republican and disagree on policy, but still take the positions that she's taking on on Donald Trump and democracy. Yeah, you can vote against the big government programs and and oppose them and and uh, and so forth. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't tell if Meyer. It's being analytical there and sort of just saying a version of what you said earlier that, yes, the fight in the Republican Party is is sort of lopsided for now, whether he's excusing his own behavior going forward, which is going to be to support every Republican running for the House, I suppose, all of his colleagues like Marjorie Taylor Greene and support Kevin McCarthy and and then ultimately, what, support Trump in 2024? Is that really what yeah, Meyer is saying? It's sort of hard know. to believe, but I guess it does sound a little bit that way. And uh, this is where the kind of fatalism is very damaging. The kind of uh, I, I've been quoting Gramsci, the Italian communist, who has these famous. Uh, I've not actually read all of them. I've read, but I've read snippets mm -hmm. of these diaries from prison in the twenties or thirties. Then he has this famous phrase: "Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will." You know, when he's addressing his fellow left-wing revolutionaries, it looks bleak. We're not going to. We don't win most of the time, but we need to sort of forge ahead. And but you'd think people might take that attitude and the attitude that if you forge ahead now, things might break in your direction at some point. That seems to be Liz Cheney's attitude. There's a cut, but the fatalism is really enervating. And you see that with, with Meyer and, and with a lot of the others, uh, every, with Republicans from voters all the way up through the most senior elected officials, former elected officials, God forbid, you know, former President Bush or Condi Rice or people like that should speak out because, you know, what's the point? It's not going to work. And Biden's so dangerous because he wants to waste a lot of money in some stupid social programs. I mean, it's so, um, the, the fatalism is, is I guess, I, don't, I can't tell if it's a real thing or if it's an excuse for not doing things that are difficult. I'm not sure. Well, it is an exhaustion of the will. I mean, he, he sounds like a broken man, to be honest with you there. You yeah. know, it's a, um, and, you know, I mean, he's being honest, I think, in the sense that he's expressing why he is going along with all of this. But it's going to be a long road. And you have to ask, uh, does he really want two more years in office under these terms? So, OK, I'm, I'm going to try a, uh, an analogy on you that, that probably is going to fall apart. It's not very good. You know, we kept thinking there was going to be a moment that kind of that click moment where everybody goes, OK, you guys were right about Trump. And remember when you had that sense of vindication post-January 6th for about 48 hours, right. where it was so clear how awful this was. Lindsey Graham broke with him. Uh, Kevin McCarthy broke with him. It looked like, at least temporarily. Mitch McConnell gave a still, if you go back and you read it, a remarkable speech on the floor of the Senate about Donald Trump. And you had members of the cabinet who resigned. Even some of the usual pundits and the anti-anti-Trump uh, pundits uh, were like, okay, this guy, this is you know, too much. We're, we're done with him. That lasted about 48 hours. And so part of the disorientation is now a year later, watching Trump's support among Republicans as strong as ever. It would almost be as if, okay, I know you love NFL analogies. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to bring up the Green Bay Packers. You follow the Antonio Brown story yesterday? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. I saw the okay. clip. Okay. Yeah. So Tampa Bay Buccaneer, um, very talented but deeply troubled guy, Antonio Brown, has a complete meltdown on the field, takes his uniform off, strips almost bare, and leaves the field in the middle of the game. He walks off the field. I'm trying to imagine, for people to understand what it's like to be us, imagine a year from now, 
Bucks fans thinking, we are totally behind Antonio Brown. That was brilliant. This was great. Antonio Brown is our guy. You go, wait, he's the guy who screwed everything up, who walked out on everybody. And, and it was as, as clear as you could possibly be. If you had sports fans that rallied around something like that a year later and said, yeah, and you know what? I, I think, you know, probably um, he should be the MVP of the team um, and that they should have him back and that every other team should consider signing him. Are you crazy? That's the way it feels watching what happened with Donald Trump in the run up to this election, his behavior on January 6th, his refusal to participate in the peaceful transfer of power. It's the political equivalent of basically ripping off your jersey, walking off the field, and then having everybody go, that was great. This is wonderful. This is exactly what we're looking for. I thought you were going to take that in a different direction. Don't you think actually football fans would mostly welcome him back if he you know, in a couple of weeks, if he, if he thought they could win a playoff game with him and, sure. and he was better than the substitute receivers. Well, I mean, <laughs> so well, that's right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, and they probably, they probably would. Okay. So let's talk about, this is the anniversary of, of January 6th. Um, there are going to be all sorts of events to market. There will be prayer meetings. There will be speeches. The president is going to give a speech. Apparently the former president is also going to give a press conference. Lord knows what's going to happen. So you had some thoughts over the weekend about how Congress ought to be marking January 6th. Yeah, I guess I'm Speaker Pelosi put out a, a you know, press release at the end of last week over the weekend saying they were going to have solemn ceremonies on January 6th. They're going to have a panel discussion with two historians, I think Mike Beschloss and Doris Kearns Goodwin, and then they were going to have speeches by members about what it was like that day, and then there was going to be a prayer vigil on the steps of, of, of Congress and all very, and you know, I, I first I read that, I thought, oh, okay, I guess that's fine. Yeah. I mean, then I thought, I don't know, it seems like a little ridiculous, you know, this is the Congress of the United States. Why don't they come into session on January 6th and actually pass the legislation that's relevant to January 6th, like the Electoral Count Act we've discussed before, yeah. limited parts of the two other voting acts they passed, or at least enforce subpoenas of the January 6th committee, or do something like that. I mean, it's so lame, it seems to me. To, maybe I'm being too harsh here, but it feels lame to me to be just having a, you know, there should be a moment of silence, a moment of, 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 of respect, you know, of commemoration of what happened, of, of sorrow for what happened, and of tribute to those who tried to defend the Capitol. Uh, flags could be lowered for that moment, and then they should be put back up, and the Congress should get back to work. Now, it's funny. Someone, Jake Sherman, I think, tweeted. I think I think he didn't understand that I knew this, so he, he tweeted. Understandably, he said he tweeted something. Well, Congress isn't in session. The House isn't in session on the sixth. So my idea that they could pass legislation or have legislation, you know, actually do things on the floor was wrong. But of course, that just raises the question: Why aren't they in session? Well, because their schedule, you know, doesn't have them coming back till later. It's like let's not do anything extraordinary just because it's one year after January sixth. Let's not inconvenience members by bringing them back. I, the whole attitude towards it is a little. I feel, I don't know quite how to put it. I mean, doesn't doesn't convey the urgency that should be conveyed on the first anniversary of this extraordinary event. Well, you know, speaking of which, you know, I, l looking at the way that the Democrats have politically handled this, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, that the Democrats have not really um, politically exploited the uh, the irresponsibility of Republicans on all of this. I mean, I think they really ought to be pushing the issue. Um, and, and I think every Republican ought to be asked this Thursday, and this is Kristen Vanderbrook's idea. I want to give him credit. Every re elected Republican should be asked on the anniversary of January 6th, 
Do you think that Mike Pence did the right thing or the wrong thing by not overturning the election, by not going along with President Trump? It's a very simple question. Did Mike Pence do the right thing or did he not? Uh, I think they ought to be asked that. I also think that, you know, when you talk about a sense of urgency, um, they ought to be back in session because that's, that's sort of the beyond symbolic affirmation of, of the continuation of constitutional government. But in retrospect, did they botch that first impeachment? And I, I think the answer is almost certainly yes. But I mean, you know, in retrospect, shouldn't they have acted more quickly? Shouldn't they have been more aggressive? Their failure to move before he left office, uh, the failure to hear witnesses. I mean, in retrospect, there was a moment that needed to be seized and they bobbled it and they lost it. Yeah, the, the post-January 6th impeachment. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. right. They, they are the Senate. We, I remember watching that in real time and talking with people uh, working on it on the Hill on Saturday morning. And I was, uh, I think it was on the Senate side at least, and they uh, said so it was in early mid-February, and it was uh, the Senate wanted to get home. For, I think maybe it was a holiday weekend. It was like Lincoln's birthday or something. So they decided, well, we don't need to call witnesses. Though they had a majority to call witnesses, they had a majority. actually. And so I think that was an early sign of Democrats not fully understanding how to take advantage of. That makes it sound too political, but the right thing to do at that moment. But look, if the House were in session this week, and it's not too late, Pelosi, if she's listening to this, can call them back today for to be in by Thursday. They can have a resolution on the floor condemning what happened January 6th, condemning those who instigated it and who have apologized for it, praising Mike Pence for doing the right thing. That would be a wonderful vote for Republican members of the House to have to take, right? But, I mean, they don't seem to even think of doing something like that. And I think it would be the right thing to do from a civic point of view, leaving aside the party politics. It would also have, I think, good party politics uh, uh, ramifications and putting pressure on Republicans and let them vote against the notion that Mike Pence did the right thing by refusing to uphold the election. And let's remind people, you tweeted about this over the weekend and I did too, let's remind people that a majority of House Republicans voted to overturn electors based on no evidence and no uh, legal arguments because it was Trump wanted them to. So Again, I feel that I, I hope we still have a few days till January 6th. I hope that more people, and it doesn't have to be Democratic members of Congress, but people in general sort of step up to sort of explain the meaning of it and the meaning of it going forward. Because we have one political party now that is basically somewhere between pro-January 6th and excusing January 6th. No, and I think that the polls would suggest that this is not a winning issue for Republicans you know, to continue to downplay January 6th. But I guess there's kind of a, also a disconnect, and I guess I'm using the word exhaustion again. I'm a little bit exhausted by all of the rhetoric about the need to save democracy, and yet the Democrats' main bills don't do anything to address the immediate crisis. So Philip Rotner has a great piece uh, in the Bulwark today um, where he talks about I mean, you know, if they just had five more Rudy Giuliani types around the country, um, this coup could have worked. And he goes through all the things, how, what a close call it was. And he said, you know, you're probably thinking you need to pass federal voting rights legislation. You're right. But get this, absolutely nothing in either of the two voting rights bills the Democrats are trying desperately to get through Congress, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the For the People Act of 2021 would change anything about how the states go about selecting electors or certifying presidential elections. The bills would bring much needed reform in crucial areas such as voter access, election security and campaign finance, but they would not inhibit state legislatures from hatching schemes to effectively nullify the popular vote. 
And I guess this is the thing, you know, again, so, I mean, how many segments are we going to have talking about the need to protect democracy? And yet there's a real disconnect between what they're doing and the nature of the crisis they face. Yeah, no, no reform of the Electoral Count Act, which is the more relevant, would have the more relevant provisions. There are a couple of things, I think, maybe in the Freedom to Vote Act about protecting election officials against intimidation mm-hmm. and so forth. But pull those out, add those to the Electoral Count uh, Act, which I told is drafted, but they don't want to introduce it yet because they still want to keep the pressure on on these other bills. What pressure? No Republican is feeling any pressure on these other bills. And the politics of this have been, I think, very badly mishandled by Democrats. And just stepping back again from the politics, if you had told us all a year ago, well, a year after January 6th, what will Congress have done to fix the problems that we saw between November 3rd and January 6th and November 3rd and January 20th in terms of the ability to use both instrumentalities of the federal government and to pressure state and local officials from the White House or just for, for, for individuals to do so, for parties to do so? What would, If they had told us nothing is going to be – they will have done nothing. I mean, I think this is almost nothing. literally true. Has yeah. Congress done anything in – you know, 365 days to strengthen the guardrails, which we saw were awfully rickety a year ago. And I think the answer, sadly, is no. And I think people who come came down from Mars and saw that would say, are you kidding me? They had this assault on the Capitol and nothing has changed. They've beefed up security a little bit around the Capitol. That's what they've done. I mean, it's really pathetic. It, well, it is. And it's extraordinary. I'm trying to think, you know, of historical analogies, because, of course, Congress felt the obvious need and the obligation to legislate after Watergate. I imagine that there was legislation after Teapot Dome. Right. I imagine every major crisis that the country has gone through has resulted in Congress coming up with some answers. Now, I'm not saying they're all correct answers or they were well thought out, but they felt the need to address it. In this particular case, there's been a lot of talk, but I, I, I think you're right. I don't think anything's been done at all. So some of our listeners think that we beat up on Democrats, but I was thinking back on before I became completely exhausted at the end of last year. (laughs) Summing up the year 2021, that 2021 was the year that we were supposed to return to normalcy, and we didn't. That was the promise. That was the expectation. And I think part of the disillusionment by the end of the year was Joe Biden had failed to return things to normal. But I guess the the lesson here was that maybe – Maybe there is no normal anymore. There is no normalcy anymore. There was nothing normal to be restored, that the the rot is so much deeper than Donald Trump. Take him out of office and things not only don't get better, they in fact get worse. So talk to me about the end of the year a little bit. We can address that. But at the, the end of the year, and I, I was, I'm really very, very grateful that I wasn't around for the whole Democratic mansion meltdown, We you know, build back better and everything. Uh, your just thoughts about the way in which this this administration had all of this bold and brave rhetoric about we're going to be FDR, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be you know, LBJ, and we're going to have the great society and everything. And at the end of the year, Joe Manchin pulls the plug on some of their agenda. And so even though they've accomplished a lot, there's that sense of complete failure at the moment. I mean, some of it, I, I think, is bad luck, don't you think, with, with Delta and Omicron and, you know, and the vaccine resistance, which probably was greater than than, than we would have expected. And so the the not being done with COVID is is a part of it that they deserve some blame. And I, I think on testing, which we've all harped on for a long time, and some of the messaging around boosters and stuff. But um, so that's I put more in the bad luck category and and some in lack well, of you you were hard on them on the you you were calling this out early about the the failure on testing. Yeah, which is well, a, which I, is I a just, huge public policy failure. 
So that it, it, I think they have had public policy failures there, and that's so that's a failure not of understanding, I don't think, uh, as much as of lack of energy in the executive. And I think that comes back to your normalcy point, which is normal to restore normalcy, if you want to think of it that way. After the kind of governance we've been through for four years, and after the crisis of the last of the election in particular, requires more than just you know a normal kind of bureaucracy as usual, politics as usual type of governance. It requires more energy because, as FDR showed, if you're going to get out of a hole, you need to do a lot of things and do them energetically and maybe do some experimenting. Um, now, the other thing I would say, though, is they also, the focus on Build Back Better was a little nuts. I mean, and it wasn't like FDR and selling. FDR never said, do these one or two things and we're done. The problems yeah. are solved. We've transformed America. Thank you. Goodbye. That was not what FDR said at the end of night. I don't know this, but I'm going to yeah. just stipulate this. I believe I'm correct. I don't believe FDR said that kind of thing at the end of 1933 or the end of 1934. He said, we need to do a ton of things. We've made a good start. We're going to do a lot more things. Now, we, we may not like all those things, and we wouldn't like all the kinds of things that Biden would do, but that would imply a much more, I don't know what the right word is, incremental or iterative, or let's get the things done that we can get done now and then do some things later. You know, Social Security wasn't passed till 35. I mean, Biden hasn't had that attitude of, I'm going to come in, I'm going to make sure we do some emergent things first, I'm going to build political support for doing subsequent things. So I think there's been a kind of weird, let's get to normalcy, and here are a couple of silver bullets that will do it. And meanwhile, the government can just chug along, and FD, FDA, CDC, State Department, uh, all these different parts of the government, that just be fine. We'll put a bunch of kind of you know mediocre political people in a lot of these cabinet agencies and not worry too much about yeah. it. You're in the middle of COVID, and you put in an HHS secretary who isn't really has shown no ability, no great knowledge of any of these issues. None of us has heard a thing, I don't think, from him. And he, and he vanished. Yeah, I don't, I I'm, I'm struggling yeah. a little bit on his name I know. here. <laughs> we have a nice <laughs> person. Yes, CDC director is a serious person, serious public health person. Not, I wouldn't say, though, a kind of huge take charge, overhaul the whole agency. FDA hasn't doesn't have a confirmed director. I just feel like there's been a certain lack of urgency. Inflation, uh, that was you know, maybe a policy mistake, maybe just inevitable coming out of the pandemic of all the supply chain distortions and stuff. But again, okay, a strong treasury secretary or a visible one could explain some of this or a visible commerce secretary, Buttigieg, I guess, is pretty close on that, but he's so busy selling infrastructure. I just feel generally there's just a lack of, of feeling among people that we're getting strong leadership. People would prefer strong leadership that might make some errors to a kind of uh, bureaucratic, um, you know, uh, well, we can't do this because it's awfully complicated and that's not how the system works kind of attitude. So that's a little unfair because they're probably doing more, you know, behind the scenes than, than we realize and all that. And you, and you don't want to simply go in and break a lot of China, but I think that they, they need to show more energy, more extensive experimentation, more real leadership this year. Well, also, um, I, I think this is going to be a longer-term problem, I think, for the Democrats, that the performance of the federal government has not been such as to uh, right. encourage deeper faith. I mean, the story of, of this pandemic is the story of uh, the CDC being slow, uh, the FDA being incredibly, um, you know, sort of ham-fisted. And, you know, for, for people who are saying, you know, let, let's trust Let's trust the elites. Let's trust. Let's trust the experts. Let's trust uh, government uh, regulators more. 
this has not been, an, you know, I mean, there's a mixed record. I, I certainly don't want to be a, a Luddite about this. The experts have been right about a lot of things. I also think that it's justifiable to change your opinion as the facts change on the ground. I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of that. But uh, this has not been a bravura performance by um, the governmental regulatory elites. No, and, and it's that's been building for a while. It certainly was made worse, I'm sure, by Trump's uh, handling of them and the number of people who left and, and the you know misuse of these agencies. But fine, so go in and say, you know what, we are the party of government pretty much, the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. so we're going to fix government. We're going to change it. Roosevelt didn't just take Hoover's government and say, well, this is fine. I'm now going to implement my policies with Hoover's people or Hoover's bureaucracy, I don't believe. And, and and Truman, to take a maybe more relevant example, at the end of the 40s, they messed up all kinds of things. And they realized, uh, foreign policy, I'm thinking here more, and, and they realized we need to change the actual way the federal government works to deal with the challenges we're now about to face. This was, of course, the Cold War mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union. But it's not that different in the sense that you, if you want to be the party of government, you need to be the party of effective and energetic and people like you and I would say limited government, uh, which means changing the way government works, not just uh, being happy with what you've inherited. There's a kind of com almost complacency when you uh, listen to them talk about the way government works. It's a little mystifying to me, and I think means that we, unfortunately, it's going to discredit. There are things government should do. We should have energetic and limited government, uh, and they're not helping in that cause. This is going to sound funny coming from me because I, I've, I've always been a supporter of low taxes and of tax cuts, but there comes a point at which you do need to pay your bills. And so the the way in which conservatism became all about cutting taxes, even if it is exploding the national debt, was sort of a weird flex, I think, among conservatives. But from a political point of view, the lowest hanging fruit for the Democrats would have been repealing the tax cuts on the wealthy that were enacted under Trump going after the billionaires and millionaires. And I don't think it's demagogic to say that at a certain point you have to pay the bills. Democrats clearly have a populism problem. They have an, you know, and, and yet they are, I'm looking around and there's no messaging on that at all. I mean, the average American, what are they doing in Washington? They are spending lots of money, but there's very little serious attempt to deal with income inequality or to force billionaires to pay their fair share. And there just doesn't seem to be any energy behind that. And I find that politically puzzling. No, I think that's really an important point. And I, I, one, another way to put maybe the same point or similar point would be to say, you could have moderate reforms, which are friendly yeah. to democratic capitalism, which don't just, you know, aren't, aren't attempts to impose socialism yeah. or anything, but they can be pursued energetically. And I mean, I very much agree with you on the, on the tax issue. Instead, it's the progressives, the, the left wing of the Democratic Party that seems to have the energy and a lot of their ideas are very foolish and damaging, I think. And the moderates seem to be in a kind of weird status quo moment. But again, if FDR hadn't been aggressive in saving democratic capitalism, we would have had something more like socialism or maybe fascism or some combination of the two. So the energy... An energetic kind of centrism really is uh, important, and I think we've got some of the centrism, not quite as much as you and I would like, but at least some of it. It's not like Janet Yellen and Pete Buttigieg and people like that are sitting around, you know, thinking about how to destroy the, the you know, American system, uh, free enterprise, but but uh, not enough energy behind that, and certainly not enough energy behind things like public health, where the government does have to play a central role. 
Yeah, I, I'm kind of um, also a little bit baffled by the fact that uh, here we are on uh, January 3rd and the the child tax credit, which was the centerpiece of the Biden's first year of his presidency, has has expired. You know, as 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 COVID is spiking and Democrats allowed it to expire. And the reason I'm saying it with that tone of voice was I think there was conventional wisdom in the last month of 2021 that, well, obviously Democrats would not commit an act of incredible political malpractice of allowing their own tax cut to expire, but they did. And, you know, one reason for that just gets to the points we've been making, which is kind of interesting, I think. Is, so I think there would be much more consensus for a somewhat slimmed down tax credit. And so reduce it. So maybe it should go most People would say, let's make it targeted on people, families making less than 150 or 200,000 a year, really help those families mm-hmm. that are struggling with pay for the kids, for mm-hmm. their kids and do, do well by their kids. Uh, but Biden won't do that, actually. Why not? Because it would violate his pledge not to raise taxes on anyone under 400,000. So there's a kind of wrapping yourself in knots because you said something during a campaign, which honestly, most successful presidents, FDR, Reagan, they didn't like get obsessed with particular things they had said during the campaign. They got obsessed with one or two of them, like Reagan was, I'm going to cut taxes. But then did he make a ton of deals to get his tax bill through, which were not things he had promised in the campaign? Sure. FDR, of course, famously campaigned on a balanced budget and the like. So again, they're sort of weirdly defensive and, as I say, uh, unimaginative, I think, in the way they're prosecuting things. Having said all that, to be fair to them, they have a Republican Party unwilling to work with them on almost anything, and that's kind of anti-democratic, and they'd have very, very slim majorities. But again, they could explain that to voters, too, instead of having this attitude of, we're going to get it all done. And then the voters say, well, you haven't got it all done. And, and then they say, well, it's much harder than you realize, because there are these yeah. 50 Republicans. But you know, get that up front, the, you know, the fact that the Republicans are obstinately backing, blocking everything. Again, they've, how many tough votes, this is the way I think about it, having been around Washington a bit, how many tough votes have they forced Republicans to right. take? They right. can separate out the parts of these packages, separate out parts of the Each one electorate. Of one provision, no intimidation of election officials. Yep. Let's just vote on that, on the floor. Mm-hmm. Let the Republicans explain why that shouldn't be, why they should filibuster the motion to proceed on that. Let's get that freestanding. Let's not have that part of an 800-page freedom to vote bill that includes campaign finance reforms that actually are not a particularly good idea and all kinds of other complicated things about early voting and stuff, which may or may not be good ideas but aren't crucial. We didn't have them before, and Mm -hmm. people voted, and and, and that can be handled to some degree at the state level. Anyway, let's get the most attractive things and force the votes on those, but they're just not thinking in that way. No, they're not. Okay, another development that occurred, though, well, in the last uh, last three days, uh, Eric Adams becomes uh, the new Democratic mayor of New York, having won a primary in which he ran as very much a centrist who took uh, issues of law and order seriously. And we had a really interesting piece in the bulwark, you know, asking the question about whether he was the next rising Democratic star. But also, I just find it interesting. It's part of this pattern where despite all of the you know progressive rhetoric that you often see in in the media the reality is is that uh, on the ground a lot of elected democrats um are moving in the opposite direction i thought that the comments by the mayor of san francisco um were rather extraordinary where she basically you know said we, we have to, we have to cut out all this stuff that's you know turned this, this town into shit or something like that um you know pushing back against uh, some of the uh, you know, progressive prosecution ideas. You're seeing the same debate in Philadelphia. Uh, so at least at the local level, I think you're seeing um, 
a much more muscular activist centrist style of Democrats, or at least a pushback against some of the extreme sorts of things that Republicans have been so effective in projecting as the what Democrats were really all about. I totally agree. And I mean, why hasn't Biden had mayor, the duly elected Mayor Adams in New York City, or uh, could have had him as mayor-elect to the White House and the mayor of San Francisco and the former mayor of Philadelphia, who denounced the uh, left-wing DA for releasing criminals and helping lead to a spike in the uh, murder rate there? Why hasn't he had them to the White House and had a roundtable with them on how he wants to be, he's tough, on, he wants to be tough on police departments that have done things they shouldn't do. And he's for police reform, as these mayors all are, incidentally. But he's also for being tough on crime. And that would be a very, I think, dramatic kind of meeting at the White House. And the left, some people on the left would really dislike it. And let the left attack the voters of San Francisco and the voters of New York for electing mayors who actually are serious about keeping their cities Help, you know, healthy cities and safe cities and want to get tough on crime. I, I think, again, they're missing, maybe there. there's just, what do you think, lack of imagination or they're intimidated by the left? I don't know. Well, that's the, you know, that's a, that's a debate that they ought to relish, actually, because I think it will help uh, you know, perhaps pivot this presidency. I think part of the problem, though, is because their, their margins are so narrow that they are absolutely reluctant to uh, alienate anyone in their constituency. They can't afford to alienate too many of them. But at a certain point, you know, this is what you have political capital for. You have to take a stand. And the number, the general election numbers are very, very different from the primary numbers. So Eric Adams wins very narrowly in a Democratic primary with lots of progressive candidates. But then he goes on to win overwhelmingly in a general election. And so and I, I and I do think that there's that kind of that moment that that if Biden comes out and says, look, we are going to be the anti-crime party. That also gives permission to other Democrats to in, engage in that, because the, the fact is that as long as they are associated with the, you know spiking crime in San Francisco and Chicago and Philadelphia and New York and Washington, D.C., uh, that's going to be a huge problem for them. And I, and I don't I haven't sensed that 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 global recognition that this is a massive problem for the Democrats until relatively recently. But it's there. Yeah, absolutely. And again, Biden should do that. Chuck Schumer and the Democrats in the Senate should do it. And if it gets a few left-wingers upset and a few left-wingers in the House upset, that's good for the Democratic Party, ultimately. Yeah. It helped Bill Clinton that the left was angry at him at times. And it doesn't mean that you need to break with them or pick fights with them unnecessarily on an issue like that, where they got so damaged in 2020. And where there is act there are actual problems and they need to be serious about being tough on crime. Uh, I, I very much agree. They're missing that. They're missing that uh, possibility. Okay. So one last point in a few minutes we have left. Again, speaking of being exhausted by this, the former president, uh, Donald Trump, sitting in his golden palace in Mar-a-Lago, issues this bizarre endorsement today of Viktor Orban, the fascist adjacent authoritarian leader of Hungary. Now, I don't know, Bill, because I haven't followed this. Is, is, is it common for American political figures to endorse people in Hungarian parliamentary elections? <laughs> yeah, I missed that somehow. Is this, like a, is, 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 is this a thing? So Trump issued a statement, and Orban is the you know, post-liberal, uh, anti-democratic leader of Hungary really has become kind of a rock star among the, you know, anti-democratic right. And here you have Donald Trump 
saying Viktor Orban of Hungary truly loves his country and wants safety for his people. He has done powerful and wonderful job in protecting Hungary, stopping illegal immigration, creating jobs, trade, and should be allowed to continue to do so. So what are your thoughts about this, where you have Donald Trump feeling the need to publicly cozy up to one of the world's, you know, thuggish authoritarians. Yeah, the guy who I think gave a speech in 2015 embracing the phrase illiberal democracy as as kind of the better future for his country and for other countries. And so Trump, we've all said Trump is illiberal, and it turns out he actually is flat out just embraces and endorses the leader who embodies that in Hungary, which where he has, as prime minister, done many illiberal things and hopes to get reelected to continue doing them, uh, and is trying to, in a Trump-like way, incidentally, you know, monkey with the system to make sure he gets reelected. He's shut down independent yeah. newspapers and universities and, and stuff. Yeah, so it's it's very revealing. And in the old days, American presidents used to support dissidents and those who fought for freedom abroad. Now Trump supports. Orban, you know, I wondered about it though. It's so crazy, and Trump doesn't. I mean, he knows who Orban is, and and said nice things about him while he was president. Why this sudden thing? And it occurred to me, you know, one way American political consultants have made money over the last twenty, thirty years, I guess, is to work abroad and to you know support work for because they allegedly know more about how to do some of these things, and so they get hired to work in foreign countries, and it's mostly above board and legal, and they work for Labour or Conservative Party in Britain, and they help out the the local consultants. I wonder how much of Trump's political consultant world and MAGA world is also working for Orban and getting money from Orban, who's stashed, like all these guys, huge amounts of money abroad. And incidentally, who's backed up by Putin and his people who well, stashed huge amounts and, of money. And, so the money that's he, sloshing around between MAGA world and Orban world and Putin world must be amazing. Well, and of course, you also have the Tucker Carlson factor. You know, remember when Tucker went and uh, he was – did his love fest as well. So he's he, he's got the imprimatur of of Tucker Carlson and Fox News as well. But what a, what a strange and bizarre move for well the strange and bizarre man. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for kicking off the year. Thanks, Charlie. It's been great being with you. Appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to our first podcast of 2022. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>